morning. Earlier this week, I, I told Emily, uh, I'm preaching about sex on Sunday. And she responded, ew, gross, why? <laughs> it, may, it may get a bit uncomfortable here this morning, especially for you kids, and especially as I'm talking about sex this morning, if your parents start scribbling notes like ferociously, it is, that's awkward, that's awkward, but I'm gonna, I have a commitment, I have a commitment I'm making here as, uh, from the outset, I'm not going to be crude about it, I'm not going to be crude, but I'm going to address what the Bible addresses. We've been looking at a letter, uh, the first letter to the Corinthians that the Apostle Paul wrote. We're working our way through the issues that plague this church. We're going to look at a number of verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning that talk about sex. There's a tendency sometimes in church to be a bit prudish in the sense of, oh, we shouldn't even talk about the subject. I want to push back on that a little bit and say it's not a good look to try and act more holy than the Bible, which speaks about sex. The Bible talks about it. We've landed on some verses that talk about it. Uh, In a desire to be faithful, we too will talk about it precisely because the Bible does. Not only that, Sex is one of the most important topics we could talk about in the church. Am I right? Sex is one of the most important subjects we can talk about in the church. Here's why. I'm convinced that where the culture speaks loudly about an issue and the church is silent on that same issue, we run the risk of losing a generation. If the culture is speaking loudly about something and the church is saying nothing about that same something, we run the risk of losing a generation on that subject matter. Here's the thing. The culture is speaking loudly about sex. We live in a hyper-sexualized culture. The second most common reason for divorce in Canada is because of infidelity. Some 63% of men and 45% of women reported having been unfaithful at least once, according to an international study. The the number of common law couples in Canada more than quadrupled in the past 30 years. Common law arrangements are up 345.2% in our nation. Here's why. Common law relationships have emerged among younger generations after watching every other marriage fall apart around them growing up. Statistically in Canada, 41% of marriages will end in divorce before they reach the 30th anniversary. 41% of marriages end in divorce in Canada before they reach their 30th wedding anniversary. And that doesn't include permanent separations that don't end in divorce. So when we say one out of every two marriages in Canada falls apart, it's precisely right. The average Canadian will have 11 sexual partners in their lifetime. 
The Me Too and Time's Up movements have risen this past year as efforts to counter systemic sexual harassment and abuse. Premarital sex, extramarital sex, adult entertainment, porn, dating apps, cheating sites, these are not only pervasive, they are normal in our society, and this is the context that we live in as followers of Jesus. Sex is one of the most important topics we could talk about in the church. So where will we take our cues? From the relationship standards on Netflix, advertising, from our hookup culture, or from God's Word? Who will we take our cues from? Our coworkers? If you're a student, the cool kids at school? Or Jesus? Uh, Amrita Sandhu. Um, wrote for the Huffington Post an article entitled, It's a Sad Time for Love When Cheating Has No Clear Definition. Um, Listen, this morning, I just have to be frank. I have a man cold. I have a stage four man cold. I'm told it's not terminal. I just don't believe it. And so I don't normally mention this kind of stuff to you. I just, we just try and work through it, but it's going to be very apparent today. So I'm just going to state it. I'm going to drink a lot of water possibly blow my nose and cough. And because we're talking about sex, I'll try and do that at the most uncomfortable moments because <laughs> I'll get a lot of joy out of that. Make you sit in it for a bit. Amrita Sandhu wrote, and it's a sad time for love when cheating has no clear definition. She, she asks, what's considered cheating to you? Is it one too many likes on another girl's picture? Or maybe it's secret deleted convos from last weekend's drunken hookups. Texting and emails have made having a little something-something on the side all too casual. Not to mention the major trust issues all these gizmos and gadgets can cause. It's a sad time for love, if that's what you even want to call it. Where did that old school love go? The kind where if you're with someone, you're, you're really with someone. You're not in so-called open relationships where the lines of commitment are blurred and overstepped one too many times. There doesn't even seem to be the notion of honoring one's relationship status anymore. People seldom fear going after someone's significant other because being secretive is just all too easy with all of this technology to hide behind. We're all losing our moral consciences and Subsequently, relationships are losing intimacy, respect, and trust. I do wonder when the turning point will come. Marriages are having more and more riding against them. It's no wonder relationships are falling apart, left, right, and center. The world being your virtual oyster isn't always a good thing. She goes on, We are receiving the false impression that there's always so much better out there for us. The temptation is all too real and it's following us like a plague every waking moment. What do you see all over your social media feeds? Men and women alike portraying their very best sexualized versions of themselves to attract the opposite sex or make their significant other jealous. But what about pornography? 
What about all those borderline nude photo accounts you follow? How about the girl or guy that you are just friends with and casually text here and there? If you wouldn't do it in the flesh in front of your partner, then what makes it okay in the world of pixels and code? Not to mention the fact that quality time with one another has now turned into being focused on our phones the entire time. Welcome to the complexity of relationships in the 21st century. Any of this ringing true? Some of you will be brave enough to be like, "Uh uh-huh. Most of us are squirming. One of the things I love about the Bible, there's so much I love about the Bible, but here's something I really love about the Bible. The Bible's so real. Like, the Bible's so honest. Like, this is the state of relationships today, and we can open the Word of God, and oh, does it speak in. It's just really forthright, really honest, really practical. So let's look at what 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 5 say. Paul writes to this church in Corinth, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except, perhaps, by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Our text this morning. You may be thinking... Wow, the Apostle Paul has too low a view of marriage, sort of an animalistic view. But, but listen, this, is, this, this isn't all Paul or the Bible has to say about marriage. It's one text, one highly practical, honest text about the realities and dangers of sex in and outside of marriage. So let's pick up where, where Paul picks up in, in chapter 7. There's a bit of a turn in, in this, this letter to the Corinthians. It, it, we see it in verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. What's being said here is that Paul right now is moving from problems reported to him, if you remember this, from Chloe's people in, in chapter 1. Chloe's people had reported some issues in the church, but now the letter turns to issues, uh, various issues raised in a letter to him from the Corinthian church itself. The remainder of the letter will be Paul addressing questions or, or, or comments that, that cor- the Corinthian church are making towards Paul and looking for a response. So marriage is one of them. We see it here. They're addressing that. Food sacrifice to idols in chapter 8. Worship wars, chapters 11 through 14. And the resurrection in chapter 15. And Paul's uh, going to respond to their, their questions or their challenging of him. I'm not always sure which it is. It's hard to tell. But, but we're going to look at chapter 7 itself over the next four weeks, how Paul responds to the questions they have about sex. Uh, we're going to look at it over the next four weeks, touching on marriage, divorce, a contentment in your station in life, where God has placed you, and of singleness. Now, I, I confess at the outset, we are talking about marriage this morning. 
We're talking about marriage, and, and there are a number of singles among us. Uh, you can do two things with this as you listen. One, it, 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 if you think that you will be married someday, this is really helpful for you to see a, a biblical picture of, of, of marriage and, and sex. Um, if you don't think you will get married, if, if you're given to singleness, if, that, if that's where you're at, um, it's still helpful because there are so many brothers and sisters in marriages for you to have an understanding biblically of what this looks like. In a few weeks, we're going to talk singleness all morning. And it'll be an opportunity for the married people in the church to listen closely about how we love well the singles among us, okay? So uh, we're talking to the married, but it's really helpful for all of us to hear. So he goes on after saying, now concerning the matters about which you wrote to say, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now we have to, we have, there's, there's, there's interpretive challenges here. What's, what's being said? Is Paul stating this? It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Or is the church writing Paul and just asserting this? It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. What's being said? Well, the majority of commentators in the most likely scenario contextually and by what Paul says next is that the statement is a Corinthian slogan that Paul rejects. The Corinthian slogan is, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. A Corinthian saying that is misguiding the church, and so they're writing Paul for clarification on that the church asks Paul about marriage and sex indicates that some in the church use the slogan to further a kind of sexual asceticism. Let me define that. Let's look at what asceticism means. Here's a couple of definitions. Asceticism is a lifestyle characterized by abstinence from sensual pleasures, often for the purpose of pursuing spiritual goals. Stated more bluntly, don't have sex with anyone, the body is a morally evil zone. Asceticism. In other words, sex is dirty and defiling. You should stay away from it at all costs. Some Corinthians saw sexual asceticism as a good, as a means to personal wholeness and religious power. They saw sex as a carnal desire beneath their spirituality. Some Christians continue to view sex as inherently dirty or ungodly. There's this mistaken approach that continues to happen, unfortunately, from time to time that parents have in desiring that their children be chaste, that they not have premarital sex, and their messaging to their kids is, sex is bad, sex is dirty, don't do that. It's yucky. Like that kind of that's their, their, their mode of trying to keep their kids from having premarital sex. It's a mistaken approach, just pastorally, just dealt with a lot of kids who, who, who grew up in that kind of a context, grew up, got married, and, and were pretty messed up. Because now what they've constantly been told their whole life is dirty and yucky and Ew, like they're supposed to enjoy. They don't know how. It's, it, it's like this broken thing. It's just a very poor way to teach your kids not to have premarital sex. Teach them that it's wonderful and that it's special and that it's sacred and God has a design for it and here's how it to function. But not sex is bad. That's asceticism as if the morally, spiritually superior have nothing to do with that. Ascetics who claim the Bible's perspective on sex is limited to procreation they're not reading this text. 
Paul refutes that line of thinking. He goes on in verse 5 to say, do not deprive one another. Here's how we counteract asceticism. We counteract asceticism by delighting in sex in marriage. I love how quiet it gets when I preach about sex. Paul will go on in his letter to say that celibacy is a gift to receive, not a lifestyle to pursue for spiritual benefit. He's going to go on to say that in the letter. In other words, he's going to say singleness is a gift, marriage is a gift. One is not superior to the other. Paul will say, I wish you were all kind of like me. You'd be more freed up for the ministry. But he acknowledges that marriage is a gift and that marriage should have a healthy sexuality in it. See, the Christian view is... Sex is good, created by God, to be enjoyed in the context of marriage between a husband and a wife. The ascetic needs to realize that sex is ordinary, that it's not wrong or dirty or spiritually inferior. The ascetic says frequent sexual activity in marriage is less than holy. Paul responds, married couples should have frequent sex in order to remain holy. That's actually probably the best summary of the whole text that I can do for you. But by and large, our issue in the church today is not asceticism when it comes to sex, but hedonism. Let me define hedonism for us. It's a school of thought that argues that the pursuit of pleasure and intrinsic goods are the primary or most important goals of human life. Said more frankly, have sex with anyone you want. The body is a morally neutral zone. Now, in the first service, when I said this, there were some people in the room that started snickering. And I'm like, like, what? Have sex with anyone you want. The body is a morally neutral zone. I was like, that's so weird. After the service, I was told that the slide said an orally neutral zone, which under the circumstances... (laughs) I was not in on that, and uh, that is probably the, 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 the greatest typo ever, anyways. <laughs> but this is precisely what's going on in our text. If you back up, if you have a Bible open, go to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13. Just look at that, where Paul says, uh, there, there's, a, there's another saying in Corinth, a, a more popular, more broadly um, accepted saying, which was, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one with the other, one and the other, which is a saying in Corinth that was wildly popular, which meant this, sex is just an appetite. When you need food, you eat food. When you need sex, you have sex. Sex is just an appetite, and there was this Greek understanding of the physical and material world where it's temporary and not important. It's not what you do with your body, it's what you do with your soul. So do whatever you feel like with your body. It's a physical body, it has cravings, fulfill those cravings, do what you want with who you want. Paul responds to that Greek saying in in the latter part of that same verse, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. A Canadian company has announced plans to open a robot brothel where customers can rent a sex robot by the hour. Similar brothels are already operating in France, Germany, Russia, Spain, Scotland, and the United Kingdom. 
This is our day and age. Sex is an appetite. So feed that appetite however you wish. Verse 2 speaks in. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. This word, sexual immorality, it's one, one word in the Greek, porneia. The root of that is where we get our word pornography from. But, it, but porneia doesn't simply mean pornography. It appears 24 times in the New Testament. If you were to do a study on the word porneia, you would see it applied in a myriad of circumstances with a roundedness of meaning that you would understand porneia to mean this sexual immorality translated in the ESV to be a catch-all term to refer to any sex outside of marriage. Sexual immorality, porneia, any sex outside of marriage. But because of the temptation to any sex outside of marriage, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. See, the Corinthians' culture was essentially hedonistic. Men would, 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 would actually have sex with prostitutes or their slaves if they had them. Because it was this hedonistic, I have an urge, I have this physical desire, and I will meet that. Is self-gratification. So I will turn to whoever can satisfy that for me. The modern equivalent is pornography and adultery. This me-focused act, I will turn to my computer. I will take the brothel that I walk around with in my pocket and have me-centered self-gratification. Look, there are fundamentally only two types of sex in the Bible, sex within marriage and sexual immorality. Let's keep reading, and we'll see Paul's response to hedonism. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He goes on in verse 6 to say, I say this as a concession, not a command. And what he's saying as a concession is, have a brief time apart sexually if you mutually agree to it for spiritual ends. But for no other reason, do not have routine, regular sex in marriage. Some of you are underlining that text. Listen, we counteract hedonism with selflessness towards one's spouse in marriage. We counteract hedonism, common in first century Corinth, common in 21st century Chilliwack. We, counter, we counteract hedonism with selflessness towards one's spouse in marriage. Verse 3 again, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. In this context, it's really, really, really important to see that the verse speaks of an obligation to give love, not the right to demand love. It's significant that the importance of giving rather than getting is stressed here. Marriage is giving oneself to another, not taking from another for oneself. There is not one demanding from the other or one denying the other. 
there is a selflessness from each towards the other in our text that we see Paul commanding. This really um, is illuminated for us when we read Ephesians 5 with this kind of an understanding where it says to wives in verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Not so much to your husband, but as you're submitting to your husband, it's, it's actually to the Lord. It's in your devotion to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. What's being said in this text, hot button as it is, is Paul is actually giving an inspiration for wives to be selfless in the marriage as worship to Jesus. You get to put the gospel on display in your marriage by having a selflessness about you as the church does towards Christ. But then he says this in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If anything, he ups the ante on how men are to be selfless in the marriage. Husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. The inspiration for husbands to be selfless in marriage is to see that it is honoring to Christ. The hedonist is self-serving. Christian marriage is self-giving. The hedonist view is actually too low. They see sex as ultimate. Christian marriage sees sex as an extraordinary gift from God, but sees Christ as ultimate. The hedonist says, I have urges and I will gratify them. Christian marriage says, my spouse has sexual urges and I want to satisfy For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, I wish we could get in a time machine together, a really, really big time machine, and we could go to first century Corinth when they received the answer back, this letter back from Paul to them, and they were to read verse 4 together. As they read, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. There would have been an audible, <gasps> and we don't quite get that. We think, yeah, okay, if, 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 if the husband's supposed, his body is his wife's, well, then, of course, the wife's body is her husband's. Like, that, that totally makes sense. We get that. But this was revolutionary at the time. The husband and the wife are equals. This was revolutionary at the time. I already said this before. Husbands would often go to prostitutes and slaves for their sexual gratification. And then they would go and have, their, have sex with their wives for procreation purposes as sort of like a duty. But if they wanted pleasure, they'd go find it elsewhere. Sounds great, right? Now, now Paul is saying, no, 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 no. He's giving ammunition to the wives that as the husband's walking out the door to go to a prostitute, she can be like, Get your butt back in this door, get back in this house. That tush is mine. Like, Paul's giving ammunition for, like, you can't do that. That's not how this works. You and I are one. You and I are one flesh. Chapter 6 is just spoken to don't tie yourself to a prostitute. And I already said that pornography is the new, like, right? So don't, don't go there, come here. 
That's precisely what's being said. There is a, a equality here, and Paul is saying that the wife has equal authority over her husband's body. Okay, so that's, that's not so revolutionary to us that there would be that kind of equality, but I still think we can apply this practically. The equality of the couple and mutual self-giving gets skewed when a husband pressures his wife to do things she doesn't want to do for his own sexual gratification. The equality of the couple and mutual self-giving gets skewed when a wife withholds sex as a tool of manipulation. Listen, just don't demand sex from your wife when you haven't pursued her on every other level selflessly. Don't, don't withhold sex, wives, from your husband because he failed you in some way. Verse 5 makes it even more clear. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This do not deprive one another, do not deprive, literally means do not rob, steal, or defraud. What's being said is each partner belongs to the other so fully that Paul can call the withholding from the other an act of fraud. Cheating today refers to having an affair. Paul uses cheating here to mean depriving your spouse of sex in a relationship. If you're depriving your spouse of sex in the relationship, you're a cheater, according to Paul. Paul is addressing a potential danger. We see it in verse 5. Failing to provide a spouse with sexual intimacy heightens the risk of sexual immorality infiltrating the marriage. Sexual intimacy is so important in marriage that if it's neglected, the strength of your natural passions will put you at the mercy of Satan. This is important. Sex is indispensable in marriage. Okay, here's a dumb question. But I'm going I'm to ask the dumb question because many of us do dumb things. So we just need to state what would appear like the obvious. But sometimes we do dumb things. So if your spouse doesn't have sex with you for a few days or a few weeks or a few months and you go sleep with someone else or you go and look at porn, you have an emotional affair, whose fault is it? I'm going to be really clear. Your sexual sin, your sexual immorality is always your own sin, period. The text is adding a, a layer. I just want to make that really clear. The text is adding a layer that's encouraging husbands and wives to be so gracious to one another that you see your spouse's temptation to sin and help them glorify God with their body. So at the very end of, of chapter 6, we've, we, it, it flows right into the text we're in right now. You're not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body, in your body. So that's what's being said here. 
Marriage is the context for sex. It's a good gift from God. It builds intimacy with your spouse and helps you avoid temptation and sin. So let's close by talking about selflessness for a few more minutes. Look, our bent, every single one of us, our bent is always towards selfishness. We are selfish by nature. So listen up. There are going to be a lot of birth announcements in the next nine or ten months. Okay, okay, okay. that's actually, that's not the thing I really wanted you to hear. Listen, this is what I want you to listen to. Okay. It's just, it's just right there, right? Listen, there is this, this is what I want you to hear. There's this thread in the letter of 1 Corinthians. It's so clear. It's constantly there. The thread in the letter to the church in Corinth is, let there be no divisions among you. Be unified is the message of 1 Corinthians. But if our marriages are broken, the church is going to be broken. If our marriages are divided, our church is going to be divided. Let there be no divisions among you. Be unified. This has to start at home. And then we bring that to the church. We're selfish by nature. When those who are one, act like they're two, and when those called to serve the other are more interested in serving themselves, it leads to breakdown. But when we recognize the power of other-centered, monogamous sex between a husband and wife, it becomes extraordinary. Our commitment to selflessness honors God and simultaneously sanctifies us. See, ultimately, selfless service in a marriage relationship is intended to spur both partners on in their devotion to the Lord. That's the greater end of sexual pleasure. The greater end of sexual pleasure in a marriage is to live a life that's pleasing to God. And of course, this is the aim of marriage even beyond a couple's sex life. God calls us to be kind and gracious, sanctifying agents in the lives of our spouses. For those of you who are married, those of you who are looking to be married, God uses marriage as a sanctifying tool. And to those who are married, they understand that he uses it like a sanctifying tool, like nothing else. I found this to be the case. Sanctifying, what I mean by that is to become more Christ-like, less like your selfish nature and more like the selfless nature of Christ. I found marriage to do that. I, I'm, I'm at the start of the millennial generation, or at least I like to think so. so there's certain year uh, fluctuations in some of what they dub millennials, and I like to put, throw myself in there. I'm a millennial, and uh, millennials are, of course, the entitlement generation. So picture me, the poster boy for selfish, entitled, millennial, and then I met Emily, and then we got engaged, and I actually started to be like, wow, this is someone I care about so much that I actually care about their well-being at, at times more than my own well-being. And then we got married, and that responsibility kind of notched up a bit, and I, I need to love her more than myself. I need to cherish her. I need to care about her more than I care about me. And then you have a baby. And it goes up a notch, like the opportunities for self. Like they cry in the middle of the night, these babies I hear, right? 
they cry in the middle of the night and they press your selfishness and you go, really? Right, you need me to, for you to live, you need me to be less selfish and to become more selfless. And that's hard for us, but it makes us more selfless. And then perhaps some of you have another kid and another kid. And now I'm just talking to the Dutch folks. Then another kid and another kid and another kid and another kid. <laughs> Would all the Dutch folks just stand? You are the most sanctified. <laughs> I was talking to a couple after the first service, and uh, she was like, we only have four, actually. And I was like, are you even accepted among your people? Like, <laughs> you don't have one of those long van buses? Like, <clears throat> how do you even belong? That's what it does. Like, it takes us from selfish to selfless, if we'll let it. Like, if we'll let our marriage and our parenting be a, a, a sanctifying tool, will you let it? Um, when, I, when Emily and I got married, right, it's, it's newlywed bliss. And I just recall in the first year of marriage, like, Emily would be like, oh, I left my phone in the other room. Could you grab it? And I'm just in, like, newlywed bliss. I'm like, I would love to grab that for you. Right? And off I go. I grab her phone for her, and I come back, and I sit down, and I like, just sit down. She's like, oh, my water cup's over there. Not a problem. I would love to grab your water cup for you. I'll just go up and get it. Get up, go up, bring her water cup, sit down. She's like, ah, I left my purse in the car. Not, hey, I would just love to serve you. Right? Like, that's, this, that's new honeymoon bliss. Every year since, she'll be like, oh, could you grab me my phone? I'll be like, you have legs. Okay. I, I've never said that for the record But I've thought it. <laughs> I've thought it a lot. Why? Because I'm selfish by nature. And every time I have the opportunity to be selfish or selfless, man, my marriage just puts that in my face. How will I live today? How will I live? Look, I have the immense privilege of being Emily's husband. And in my better moments... <laughs> I, I want to spend my life serving her. I know that I do. And she has a cross to bear in being my wife. <laughs> and she gets in our covenant marriage to spend her life aiming to serve me. If I could give a special word to the husbands, don't demand from your wife what you're not willing to put in. I know both sides of this. This passage isn't inviting you to take from. It's inviting you to pour in. Be a team for the flourishing of one another, for your spouse's flourishing for the good of your family, for the good of this family. I mean, this is what Paul now speaks up to again in Ephesians 5. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that's saying far more than physically, it's spiritually, emotionally. You're tied to each other. You're to be exclusive with one another. And he says this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The divine mystery of marriage and of sex is that our marriages were made to image the gospel. Christ's love for his bride, the church, in love with Jesus. 
See, where we will give our marriages to display in Christ and the church, he will meet us in that and make our marriages more than we ever could have imagined. I'm going to invite the band to come up, and we're going to respond in a moment, but I, but I feel like I have to have just one final word as they come up when, when, when we're talking about th- this kind of subject matter. Listen, marriages are messed up in our world today. And the church isn't um, protected from that. It doesn't just happen out there. It happens in here. Marriage is messed up in our world today. Sex is messed up in our world today. And as I study first century Corinth, I quickly recognize that it was then too, really as long as sin has been in the world, sexual sin has existed. And so for some of you, your marriage has been devastated by porneia, by sexual immorality. And I say this as a preacher of the gospel. It is not hopeless for you. In this, there is hope in Jesus Christ. So this morning, just really practically, don't put your hope in yourself. Don't put your hope in your spouse. Really practically this morning, put your hope in Jesus. He can take your broken, messed up soul and cleanse and heal you, sexual immorality and all. He can take your broken, messed up marriage and cleanse it and heal it, sexual immorality and all. There's hope in the gospel for you. There is hope for you to see a transformation come. As you lean into your marriage, don't distance yourself in your marriage. Lean into your marriage, and what you're leaning into is your selflessness towards them. As by God's grace, they would pour in their selflessness towards you. And watch how the gospel will be put on display. Watch how your marriage will begin to flourish. I pray that for us. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Jesus, we need your mercy and your grace in this. I, I know as a pastor, I, I, I'm facing the realities that, that the conviction that we're not talking about sex enough in the church. And so, uh, because it's just, it's at every single turn, it's challenging us, it's tempting us every day. Oh, Jesus, would you purify, would you cleanse your church, your bride? We're not spotless, we're guilty. We need your mercy, we need your grace. We ask that you'd bring it. Earlier in chapter 6, it says, in past tense, you, to every believer, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. This is who we are in Christ despite our record, despite our wrongdoing. Jesus, we rely on the finished work of Jesus for our sexual immorality to be covered, to be washed, for us to be cleansed. And Jesus, I pray you wouldn't simply make a dirty thing clean. I pray that you would make us a display of the beauty of the gospel by how we handle sex, how we live out our marriages. Would you give us that grace to live for you in this area of our lives? To you be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.